Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Friday, April the 7th, 2023. And once again, Supreme Court is in the news. It's making news rather than just analyzing law. ProPublica revealed that for 20 years, the Supreme Court Justice, you know who, Clarence Thomas, has been treated to luxury vacations by, again, surprise, surprise, a billionaire Republican donor, a man called Harlan Crow. It's all over the news. Um, Thomas, claiming innocence, said he was advised that lavish gifts didn't need to be reported. One wonders whether that's true. Um, Politico reports that uh, Thomas is defending these so-called family trips. Uh, CNN is getting involved, suggesting that um, Thomas says that trips with billionaires didn't need to be disclosed at the time. One wonders if it had been on the left, Thomas would have been one of the first people to be outraged. And, of course, the right-wing press, including Fox. Uh, CNN's coverage of law is... um, very good, and, and and one of their leading uh, analysts on CNN on on the court is uh, my guest today, Joan uh, Bisquipic, and I'm gonna uh, mispronounce her name because I felt a lot of pressure. Joan Bisquipic uh, has a new book out. It's called Nine Black Robes Inside the Supreme Court's Drive to the Right and Its Historic Consequences, uh, and it's just out and i'm sure joan did you orchestrate this scandal to give your book more publicity i did and i do want to say andrew i know the pressure of having to pronounce somebody's name right because i have terrible pronunciation but i just want to help you with it it's biscupic like there was a q in there well it's particularly embarrassing to have a real pro like you on the show (laughs) no i'm just an aspiring cnn person no let me just tell you i uh i cringe whenever i look at uh difficult names and i know i have one and it's probably not even pronounced the way it was originally pronounced back in croatia so well, as we move forward, I'm not going to mention the b word we're just going to call you joan you have a new book out uh joan um and uh, it's a hot one, Nine Black Robes. It's already uh, selling very well, probably a bestseller. And in fact, we were supposed to, we were scheduled to do the interview yesterday, but you had to duck out because you needed to appear on CNN. Before we get to the book itself, Joan, what about this case? Is it real or is it just more media hysteria in an no, age of media it's, hysteria? It's, it's really important. And that's why I didn't do this interview with you yesterday. Uh, we're, we're taping here on Friday and it, it was Thursday that ProPublica broke this very impressive story, you know, tracking down all these trips on a super yacht that Clarence Thomas had taken with Harlan Crow. He's a you know Republican billionaire. He's, he's uh, has a strong interest in, uh, moving the judiciary to the right. He's given to lots of conservative causes. And Clarence Thomas went with him on these great trips to these lavish resorts around the world, New Zealand, Indonesia, you know, he's in over, over uh, a couple of decades. So it is an important story. And let me just tell you though, that there is some ambiguity in the rules. Uh, he put out a statement today. Uh, I'm not 
sure when you're going to air this, Andrew, but today is Friday, and he put We're out. We're airing statement. it now. This is like CNN, oh. uh, Joan. Everybody's oh, so seeing sorry. it in real time. Okay. We'll probably you're put it up in, in a few hours. Okay, great, great, great. Well, then I just wanted to make sure, just in case there are any other developments. But here we are on Friday, and Clarence Thomas has finally put out a statement, and that's that. I have to say is even, even a big step because often these justices do not comment on these kinds of controversies. Uh, Chief Justice John Roberts hasn't yet to say anything about it. And in the past, Clarence Thomas has not commented on potential conflicts of interest, for example, arising from his wife, Ginny Thomas's work uh, in support of uh, former President Donald yeah, and Trump. You've done a lot of reporting on that. In fact, one of the things your, your book reveals is um, that relationship. I have to Suggest one thing, Joan, if, if your book was coming out now, as opposed to back then, before this latest scandal, the subtitle might be Inside the Supreme Court's Flight to the Right and its Historic <laughs> Consequences, rather than Driving, because Clarence has been on this billionaire's plane. But in all seriousness, how does it fit into your narrative? Well, it fits in this way, that the larger picture here is what the Supreme Court's doing to the country. You know, there is concentrated power at the top of the Supreme Court. They affect every corner of American life. They jolted the country with a ruling last June in Dobbs that reversed nearly a half century of uh, precedent on women's reproductive rights, abortion rights. And there's a lot of scrutiny of both their rulings and their off bench behavior. And this episode that just came out through ProPublica has been part of a drumbeat of of um, revelations about what the justices do when they're not on the bench, potential conflicts of interest. And just to close the loop on what Clarence Thomas said today, to just at least acknowledge that he put out a statement, which as I said, was different than what usually happens. He said that he had been advised by his colleagues and others who work for the judiciary not to disclose those uh, trips, that they did not have to be on the on the financial disclosure forms they do and he did acknowledge though that the rules had recently changed and such personal hospitality uh as was provided to him uh very lavish personal hospitality would uh going forward be reported but i just want to add andrew is that i think what that statement reveals is kind of the broader culture of the default mode being you do not need to disclose and this is just one justice and i i have to say that of course these are very lavish trips and, you know, on, on the private jet of this, this billionaire who's quite active in, in uh, American, you know, culture wars. But I'm sure other justices have been involved in this kind of free travel through, you Do know, you rich friends. that this is a one rule for the left and one for the right? Had one of the liberal justices been flown around the world or sailed around the world on one of George Soros's yachts or planes. I think there'd be absolute outroar. Um, Donald Trump seems to have mastered the skill in getting away with mm -hmm. quite literally mm -hmm. murder sometimes. Are, are the conservative justices, the Thomases uh, of the world, the Alitos, do they have more nerve to get away with this stuff than the liberals? I wouldn't necessarily say that. Right now we have a court dominated by so many conservatives that those those you know justices are much more in the spotlight there are only three liberals left and you know they just you know one of them has just joined the bench so she hasn't gotten that much scrutiny at Ketanji Brown Jackson so you know I think that 
I think that there has been scrutiny in the past on some of the activities of the liberal justices, but I, this, this episode does seem to be, uh, go beyond what kinds of uh, trips and benefits other justices have gotten. In fact, ProPublica, which had done all this extensive reporting, said that they looked at other, uh, as much of the travel as they could of the other justices, and this this is in a, really a category of its own, and and you have to think that given the the kinds of places that uh, Clarence Thomas was able to go to, and the other point that the uh, ProPublica story made, and one that I would make too, just because I have interviewed Clarence Thomas uh, a couple of times, he stresses how you know he's a man of the of motorhoming. He talks about this large yeah. RV that he drives and how much he loves being in Walmart parking lots and. And I know that he does that. So uh, this is a, a, quite a different narrative, so to speak, here. How easy is it, Joan, to report on this stuff without bias? I mean, your book, again, surprise, surprise, has got great reviews in the Washington Post, the New York Times, whereas the Wall Street Journal, which is much more conservative, mm -hmm. suggests that you may have gone a little bit over the top and that you don't recognize right. some of the bipartisan nature. To what extent is this book itself a, a piece of liberal hysteria over the right wing, the rightward shift of the court? Well, I, I would definitely push back on that because I, I am a, a, an analyst. I am able to take a few more liberties, but there's no way that anybody would characterize me, I don't think, as, you know, a far, a left, a real strong lefty. You know, I've been a journalist all my life. And the uh, two interesting things about the Wall Street Journal piece, I was happy that they recognized the kinds of uh, activities that I was able to uncover. They used them in the, in their story, uh, or their uh, the criticism of the of the book, that there were plenty of episodes that I was able to bring to life. And you know, I just I just think that that's that's the nature of the business. We're in such a polarized time. I am happy to put my books out there and let people have at them and lots of people like them. And then, you know, there'll be a handful of critics and I take that too. It, as I say, it's the, it's the cost of doing business and, you know, anybody can cherry pick certain phrases from a book, but if you look at the book, if you pull back, Andrew, I don't think you're going to think of it as anyway, as a, a screen from the left. And I think you're going to see plenty of times where I acknowledge when the justices do have do come together on cases and i'll use this exhibit a, a a case that i'm sure you know that i got behind the scenes on and that's the bostock title seven case where the court by the six to three vote in an opinion by justice neil gorsuch a conservative expanded the understanding of what title uh title seven of the civil rights act does in terms of covering uh lgbt workers uh, who face discrimination. So that was, a, I devoted, you know, practically a whole chapter to what went on behind the scenes in that case. And to your question of how hard is it to cover the justices and, and you know, find out what, what they're really doing off the bench or even behind the scenes. My specialty is what goes on in that building. How do I try to find out what's happening in their private conferences, when the justices make pacts together, when they switch votes, I try to get at, I try to reconstruct how- they How disturbing is that? Because your book does reveal some of the backroom stuff. How yeah. disturbing should, how disturbed should people be by some of the backroom dealings, particularly on the right? Is there, in your view, a concerted effort 
to shift the court to the right? Has the court been politicized? Well, first of all, there is a concerted effort to shift the court to the right. You know, President Trump, uh, former President Trump, when he was in office and when he was running, said he was only going to appoint justices who would vote to reverse Roe v. Wade. And he did. He appointed appointed three people who, when it came time to uh, consider whether to roll back Roe v. Wade in a in a case when that direct question wasn't even before them. The main question was whether they would uphold this ban on a 15, uh, this ban on abortion at 15 weeks of pregnancy. And uh, Justices Gorsuch, Kavanaugh and Barrett went further than the question, joining with Justices Thomas and Alito to completely reverse Roe. So I think you see how these presidential vows are carried out. So number one, Andrew, of course- Is that illegal though? I mean, right. Joan, is this something- No, no. No, it's not. It, this it's is the nature this is of what politics. Happened. Hasn't this always existed? I mean, exactly. FDR wanted you know, to make the court into. I, exactly, exactly, exactly. You go all the way back to the time of President Washington and his first, you know, and the first appointment of John Jay. Things, these things are always, these things have always had a political, you know, atmosphere to them because they have to uh, a nominee has to get through a political process he or she has uh, has to be confirmed by the senate to even sit on the supreme court so there's always going to be that political overlay but let me tell you what's different here a couple things are different first of all right now uh, all the conservatives are republican appointees and all the liberals are democratic appointees it didn't it didn't used to be that way just think of justice john paul stevens who stepped down in uh, 2010 he was appointed by Republican Gerald Ford, and he, he turned out to be one of the strongest liberals on the bench. Ditto with David Souter, who uh, inspired the phrase among many conservatives, no more suitors, but he was an appointee of George H.W. Bush, who turned out to be you know, more of a liberal. So things weren't always so predictable. And then you even take somebody like a Ronald Reagan appointee like Anthony Kennedy, who was the center of this court for many, many years. Now you don't have a center. This but court does not have center? a center. You've, you've written a number of books, including The Chief, a book about mm. Roberts. Isn't Roberts mm. now the center? In some respects, but I have to say, Andrew, John Roberts is still much more to the right. And if he's the center, he's the center without a partner. You know, on the ideological spectrum, Brett Kavanaugh is more at the center than John Roberts, since we only have three on the left now. For a while, John Roberts was the center, and but that was before uh, Justice Barrett succeeded uh, Justice Ginsburg in fall of 2020. So John Roberts really has no partner at what would be the center. And as I said, he's, he's, he's outflanked on his right by uh, five others. It always seems as if there's crisis. A couple of years ago, we had your colleague of the New York Times, Linda Greenhouse, the New York Times legendary uh, Supreme Court reporter. Yeah. She has a new book out, Justice on the Brink. This was before, uh, I think this was before the, the, the Roe decision. Or the, or yep, the... it was. So it, was. It, it always seems to be, quote unquote, on the brink. Um, I mean, well, every, it always, but Andrew, isn't that the nature that of uh, Joan covering American politics? Everything always seems to be on the brink of some sort of apocalypse or other. <laughs> well, your point is well taken. Your point is well taken in terms of the drama that we try to inject in things. But uh, Linda, who is a, a dear colleague of mine, her, her book was written before Dobbs. And I think what she would say is, 
uh, we've gone beyond, in her mind, we've gone beyond this brink. For better or for worse, uh, Roe v. Wade has been rolled back. That was something that so few of us thought would happen until, of course, Donald Trump was president, until, of course, he got the third appointment with uh, Justice Barrett. We also had another of your colleagues, uh, Dahlia Lithwick, on the show, the law correspondent of Slate. She has a book out, Lady Justice. When it comes to Dobbs, um, Joan, is this a a, a major cultural and political event as much as a legal one? I mean, what do you how how do you make sense of of the whole Dobbs thing in in, in, uh, Nine Black Robes? Okay, you have you have picked a perfect week for that question, Andrew, because we just saw in the state of Wisconsin a political election that was very much influenced by the fact that the U.S. Supreme Court has rolled back abortion rights. And it was that the race for for a key seat on the Wisconsin state Supreme Court where the uh, liberal candidate was able to use the Dobbs ruling to generate some support. And even before the race this week, back in the 22. uh, 22 midterm elections, Andrew, you, as you know, there were so many Democrats who were able to win in part running on Dobbs. That, the fact that it, it, the decision has so energized politics is exactly why I used to predict that the Republican appointees probably wouldn't roll back Roe v. Wade because they knew what it would do to the political scene. The, the savvier uh, members of the court knew what it, it would do. And indeed, for decade after decade after decade, Republican appointees who didn't like Roe nonetheless did not vote to overturn it. We have a different set of justices now who just feel a real sense of urgency to roll back uh, the precedent of the 60s and 70s. But John, doesn't it isn't the genius of the American political system, although mm-hmm. it's not always manifest, that there's always recalibration. As, as you suggest, there will be political ramifications of all this. And eventually, conservatives will get the message that the abortion stuff is unpopular and things will get recalibrated. Why is that any different from any other time in American political or legal history? You know, I love that word, I, 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 the, I, the notion of recalibration. And I've, I've thought that the chief justice himself is always trying to recalibrate to his shifting membership on the bench. And I think you're exactly right that in the American system, we have had that kind of recalibration that you're talking about. The question, though, is now whether things have shifted so much and become so polarized that that kind of recalibration to a center, both legally and politically, can can still be done. And I personally am more optimistic about that kind of recalibration. Andrew, it's just that things just seem so polarized right now that uh, I tend to hedge my bets and I don't predict much anymore. I used to predict, as I said, I used to predict that they'll if never- I, If I knew you weren't predicting, John, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have had you on the show. Um, I'm joking. <laughs> the, Anne Richards, of course, famously said about the center, oh, yeah. the, the, the former governor of Texas, that the only oh, yeah. thing in Texas, which is in the center of dead rodents uh, in the road. Um, is there really a center, Joan? Has there ever been one in the history of the court? It's always been left or oh, right. People yes. talked about no, the no, Warren no, court. No, 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 that was no. a progressive court. No, no. All right. I'm here to tell you, Andrew, there was a center. And there was a center for many, many years. 
Sandra Day O'Connor had become the center of the court. My first, my first biographical subject back in 2005, Sandra Day O'Connor was the center of the court. Uh, Anthony Kennedy was the center of the court. Back in the 70s, Lewis Powell was the center of the court. So yes, uh, there was a center on the Supreme Court and there was even a center in John Roberts for this discrete period of time, right after Anthony Kennedy stepped down in summer of 2018, until when Amy Coney Barrett came on, there was a center and John Roberts controlled it entirely. Is Amy Coney Barrett, is she uh, a poor choice in your view? My wife, um, who's a lawyer, has suggested that she doesn't feel as if she's of the same quality as the other members of the court. Oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. First of all, she, she has a background that's not unlike some of her colleagues on the court in terms of, you know, having served on a, a lower She's not blue court. chip, is she, in the oh, same way, on. intellectually? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I am not going to, I'm not going to subscribe to that. Because first of all, listening to her during our oral argument, she certainly seems to know the law. She seems to uh, know what the cases are about. So I'm, I'm not going to say that she's not up to the uh, intellectual caliber of some of her colleagues. But I will say this, uh, she seems very committed to the right wing of the court. Uh, I would like to see more rulings from her so I could understand, will she end up being as far to the right as Justices Gorsuch and Thomas, who she's aligned with, or will she will she inch more toward the center with the chief? But I wouldn't, you're, you're right about her background that she didn't go to an Ivy League school. She went to undergrad at Rhodes College and then she did law school at Notre Dame. Uh, but I'm not, I, I would not judge somebody just on the fact that they didn't have credentials from Yale or Harvard, because you know you're sitting here being plenty critical of Clarence Thomas, and he holds a Yale Yale law degree, as does Samuel Alito. Joan, there used to be lots of talk about fundamental rearchitecting the court, expanding it, doing all sorts of mm -hmm. interesting, right. innovative, and very controversial constitutional maneuvers. Is that still for real, or have people forgotten about that one now? Oh no, they still talk about it, Andrew, but. It, it just isn't going to happen. It isn't going to happen. Even, you know, the president of the United States, Joe Biden, has skirted the issue. He created a Supreme Court refer reform commission to look at the idea of either term limits for the justices who are now appointed for life or to expanding the number of seats on the court. You know, we just have nine. We have nine now. We at times in America, it's been as few as five seats and as great as, as 10. But we've been locked in at nine uh, in for more than 150 years. And I just do not see the p political will to change it, despite the fact that very good predictions say that we are going to have this top heavy conservative court for at least another 50 years based on the idea of strategic retirements on the part of the justices, the age of these young conservative justices, and just how uh, both politics and the law are going to play out. So in your lifetime, in your family's lifetime, in my lifetime, I think this is the kind of court we're going to live with. In terms of your narrative in Nine Black, um, mm -hmm. Nine Black Robes, um, is the key event uh, Ginsburg's death and Kavanaugh's maneuvering, as you put it in CNN? What do you see the key event? Well, a, a couple things, but you're exactly right. I, the, the book begins right after Justice Scalia has died and uh, Mitch McConnell is blocking President Obama's uh, nomination of Merrick Garland to, you know, fill that seat, and you know the reversal of fortunes when Donald Trump then is elected and what he's able to do. So, you know, I 
trace everything that kind of really lays the groundwork for what will then come when Ruth Bader Ginsburg dies and the justices decide to take up abortion rights. So the, the sort of climax of everything is the period essentially from you know, September, September 18th, 2020, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg dies to when the justices decide the final ruling in Dobbs. But you know what, Andrew, I had written most of this book before the Dobbs ruling and I had to, I was waiting to finish it when I got the Dobbs ruling. And I was one of those people who kept thinking that maybe Chief Justice John Roberts was going to be able to work some compromise that would uphold the 15 week ban from Mississippi uh, on abortion, but not completely reverse Roe v. Wade. And I was wrong. He wasn't able to do anything. But I, but I realized when I went back and read everything I had written up to that point, I saw it coming, even though I didn't know it was coming. I saw how every piece of Mitch McConnell's blocking of the Merrick Garland nomination for the Scalia seat, of Trump's win, of everything Trump did, first in choosing Neil Gorsuch, then in choosing Brett Kavanaugh, and then his, his final choice of Amy Coney Barrett, who sealed the deal for reversal of Roe, how are you suggesting that I don't want to use the word um, conspiracy, but are you suggesting that the right is simply better at chess than the left and that they were thinking two or three moves ahead? The, the, the right has been both lucky and and strategic. You know, it, it's been lucky in terms of the timing. You know, Jimmy Carter, who's still alive right now and had a four-year presidency in the Barely, 70s. though, never, I think, isn't he? Yeah, exactly, exactly. We're all waiting to see what happens to Jimmy Carter, who served the country back in the 70s. He did not get a single appointment. He did not get a single appointment to the Supreme Court. Donald Trump got three appointments in four years. That's, that's almost equal to, you take the last three Democratic presidents, you take Carter... Uh, Biden and uh, Obama, well, I guess in Clinton too, but Carter, Car uh, Clinton, Clinton got two, Carter got none, Biden got two, Obama got two, and and but those, you know, Clinton and and Biden, uh, Cl pardon me, Clinton and Obama had had eight years to get their their justices on, and uh, Trump had just four years and got three appointees through. So they, it was strategy on the part of the right wing but also some good timing. And the other thing, as you'll see in this book, I have a whole chapter devoted to what I call the triumvirate, which is Mitch McConnell, the Republican Senate leader, Leonard Leo, the leader of the Federalist Society, and Don McGahn, the White House counsel. Right, we've done a lot of uh, shows on, on Leo. He's an interesting yeah. character. What yeah. about... Um... What about blaming Ginsburg a little bit? Shouldn't she have resigned and then we wouldn't have had all this? Well, uh, as you know, many, many people on the left do blame Ginsburg. They said that she should have gone when President uh, Obama tried to tried to you know, see if she was open to retirement back in 2013 when she had just turned 80 years old. He invited her over for dinner for lunch and uh, was kind of you know, trying to see what her plans would be. But she she dug in. She dug in. And, you know, she, like many people, thought that she only had to live until the end of 2016. She thought Hillary Clinton was going to win, as many people did. And lo and behold, Hillary Clinton did not win. Yeah, in other and cultures, in, in Rome, um, the emperor would have poisoned her to make sure that <laughs> that didn't happen. Finally, um, finally, uh, what about the issue of in income inequality and the way in which the court has 
compounding all the inequality in America. We did a show with Adam Cohen a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. He has a new book, mm -hmm. and I'm sure you're familiar with it, Supreme yeah. Inequality, the Supreme Court's 50-year battle for a more unjust America. Do you buy Cohen's thesis that in terms of this neoliberalization of America, the Supreme Court has huge responsibility? Well, the, this Supreme Court is fulfilling the dream that, in fact, uh, Don McGahn had is to get the Supreme Court out of uh, the business of regulating things, leave, you know, public health, environment, labor, you know, issues of, of uh, both income inequality and other types of equality throughout the U.S. The, uh, the emphasis is to remove the hand of government and let systems fly. So, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily, you know, subscribe to his full theory, but this is a court that more often than not has been siding with business over, over individuals. Well, Joan, finally, let's end with, on a, on a more positive note, most of the people I think watching this, including myself, are not happy with this right which shift. Mm -hmm. um, what can we do about it? Well, you know what? You and other podcasters and other people who are interested in what the court's doing and bringing voices forward. I, I know you're, you're not doing on both sides, but this you're, the debates and discussions you're having, it's helping this. You're, you're making people aware of what the court is doing. I find in my daily life, a lot of very intelligent people are not aware of exactly what this court is doing. They have misconceptions of, of you know, they just presume there's still some middle there. They presume that John Roberts is just because he tried to work some sort of compromise on reproductive rights, that he's much more moderate, but he's not. He's just, he's still very strongly on the right, you know, on issues like uh, voting rights, trying to court curtail voting rights and racial remedies. And so I think uh, awareness is good. And also, you know, the idea of putting pressure on these senators who are the ones who, who vet these individuals who, who get on the Supreme Court. Those are, those are things to do. And there's plenty to do beyond government to try to, you know, just Im Im improve what's happening in society right now.